listeners. We're planning on doing another listener mailbag episode in mid-March because we had so much fun doing the last one. So if you've had any burning questions about the show, like the number of individual pieces of Jethro Tull merchandise Phil owns, for example, uh, and the answer is a lot, either send them to us at discordpod at gmail.com or reply to us at discordpod on Twitter by end of day, Saturday, March 14th. We love hearing from listeners, so please don't be shy. On with the show! This is calm, yeah, yeah. This is calm, yeah, yeah. This is calm, yeah, yeah. This is calm. Hello, and welcome to This Is Comp, an accessory dwelling unit attached to the Discord and Rhyme podcast. This dwelling unit contains a planter box, a mini fridge, and compilations that we go through artist by artist, song by song. I'm Rich Bunnell. Dan Watkins. And Chris Willie Williams. If you love these compilation episodes so much that you want more of them now, 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 I have good news. You can get access to each episode six weeks early by visiting patreon.com slash discordpod and signing up for at least a $2 monthly donation. So we're currently finishing up volume one of Nevermind the Mainstream, the best of MTV's 120 minutes, which will introduce to us, uh, even though most of us haven't actually watched MTV very much, it turns out. Yeah, it turns out I'm the the bad boy who was actually allowed to watch MTV <laughs> when <laughs> I was a kid. Bad parents. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, the rest of us were watching Sesame sure Street and Romper Room and uh, Under the Umbrella Tree. Yeah, that's why I turned and out Ren the And Ren and Stimpy, another far more wholesome programming. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's still a great comp, and it's totally like in line with my musical taste, as we'll definitely see in this episode. Yeah. Because this show is all about me. <laughs> anyway, so let's move on. Uh, let's start with track 11, which is Robin Hitchcock and the Egyptians with Balloon Man. Robin Hitchcock got a start in Cambridge, England, busking in the streets and playing in local bands with names like Maureen and the Meatpackers. In 1976, he formed the Soft Boys, who would go on to influence college rock favorites such as R.E.M. with their neo-psychedelic jingle pop masterpiece, Underwater Moonlight. The band broke up in 1981, and despite the unfortunate mistake of failing to write Walking on Sunshine, leaving the task of making piles of money to former bandmate Kimberly Rue... He managed to do okay as a solo <laughs> artist. In fact, he's become one of those dependable guys who you can kind of always count on to put out pretty good albums. Balloon Man is from the 1988 album Globe of Frogs. The track draws strongly on Hitchcock's love of Sid Barrett-influenced surrealism, and it sort of approximates something Sid might have done had he had the faculties to keep recording into the 80s. According to my tireless research, the song was supposedly written for the Bengals, and to be honest, it'd probably be a pretty good Bengals song. Those are pretty strange lyrics for the Bengals, but we'll get to that later. (laughs) 
Yeah, I still like the idea, though. You won't get to the bangles. Don't don't fool. Don't tease the listeners <laughs> with a hypothetical bangles episode that will never arrive. Hitchcock himself has said that he'd be happy if he never heard the song again, but he appreciates the money he's earned from the royalties. I am kind of with Robin on this one. It's never been a favorite of mine, but in revisiting it, I found that I like it a lot more than I used to. I tend to prefer Hitchcock's more stripped-down stuff, and the overly bright, bass-popping 80s sheen on this track can kind of rub me the wrong way if I'm not in the mood for it. And personally, if I were to pick a song from Robbins from this era, I would have gone with something more like Madonna of the Wasps, but nobody asked me. I asked you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I love this song, but it almost, uh, I agree, it almost feels kind of like Baby's First Robin Hitchcock. Like, it has everything that makes a good Robin Hitchcock song, but... Everyone listening, if you don't know this this guy's catalog at all, you need to just hear as many songs as you can because he has so many like just great and crazy songs like uh, The Man with the Lightbulb Head and My Wife and My Dead Wife. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Both from the essential album Fegmania. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, this one uh, and this one is like relatively warm and straightforward in comparison, but uh, on the other hand, uh, like I mentioned before, like the lyrics are completely nuts. Like Basically, to summarize, Robin, Robin Hitchcock is walking down the street and just like this round, fat and spherical guy walks up to him and just explodes, uh, spattering him with tomatoes, hummus and chickpeas and some strips of skin. Uh, and so apparently this was just inspired by like uh, an experience Robin Hitchcock had eating a falafel while walking in the rain on Sixth Avenue in New York. So and he decided to turn it into balloon man. Might as well. <laughs> yeah, this was this was my introduction to Robin Hitchcock and he's. Definitely written plenty of songs that are even catchier, like Queen of Eyes by the Soft Boys on Underwater Moonlight, and also plenty of songs that are less whifty, like the absolutely shattering No, I Don't Remember Guildford. Oh, that's a good one. It's, yeah, the the Storefront Hitchcock live album is not quite essential, but it's got That was my really, introduction really to Robin Hitchcock solo stuff. Was it? The, the movie, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's why I kind of lean more toward his more stripped down style than this kind of full band stuff. And this one is definitely a, a tiny bit half-assed lyrically. Line, <laughs> lines like, I guess his name was probably Bruce and the non <laughs> the non sequitur, I wish I could ride a horse are barely a step up from just singing rhyme TBD. But I, st- I still like this as an introduction to the guy because it's nevertheless perfectly tuneful, appealingly offbeat, and it stands up to nearly infinite li- re-listens. Well, well, and I were talking about this earlier, like his the, his name was probably Bruce thing reminds me of uh, of Weird Al's I Want a New Duck, his parody of I Want a New Drug, because he says he thinks he's going to name the duck Bruce. Yeah, and that predated this this song by three or four years. So mm-hmm. it's it's kind of nice to think that Robin Hitchcock was influenced by Weird Al, and it also wouldn't be out of character. Master satirist Weird Al and Robin Hitchcock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I would definitely recommend starting your Hitchcock explorations with uh, his solo albums, Fegmania, and I Often Dream of Trains, just to get yeah. an idea of the full scope of what he's capable of. But Global Frogs is still a smoldering jack-o'-lantern full of spiky late 80s jangle pop, and <laughs> inflation fetishists will find the Balloon Man video more than a little pleasing. Yeah, the video was fun. 
Yeah, and Robin Hitchcock is among the artists I've seen in concert the most, I think four times now, uh, most wow. recently just a few months ago. And when you see a Robin Hitchcock show, you're signing up for some of the best solo stage banter in existence. <laughs> he is so he is so funny. And That's like, I hear. well, one of my favorites is like he once he mentioned that he loves humor, but he hates jokes. And once he saw a joke just flying across the table at dinner. So he slammed his staff of silicon onto the table and parted it like the Red Sea. <laughs> and then they had pudding. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, and the the most recent time I saw him, he mentioned that like you know doorways used to be bigger because people used to be taller back in the seventies, and like Neil Young towered twenty five, thirty feet tall. It's just stuff like that. He's hilarious, and uh, he he just as far as I can tell, he's completely sober the entire time. It's just like stuff that comes. Yeah, out. just a he's got a very interesting stream of consciousness. Mm-hmm. I saw him at one of the scuzziest bars in town years ago, and he walked past me to the bar and got a cup of tea. So he's a very <laughs> Temperate, charming man on stage. He's very British. (laughs) Mm -hmm. He's also very into his cat right now. Yes. uh, Who is on the cover of his most recent um, self-titled album. Yeah. (laughs) It's a good album, too. Yeah, it is good. Yeah. You have have options if you're getting into Robin Hitchcock. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, well, done with Robin Hitchcock. Let's go to the most notable song on this compilation, (laughs) World Parties, Put the Message on the Shelf. In the box. It's in the box. Excuse me. <laughs> That's how notable it is. <laughs> am I thinking of Put the Book Back on the Shelf by Bell and Sebastian? I think I, I am. I believe so. Yeah, that's a better song than this. <laughs> Sorry, World Party. <laughs> Party was formed in London in 1986 by multi-instrumentalist Carl Wallinger after leaving the British-Irish folk band The Waterboys. I know nothing of the British-Irish folk band The Waterboys. Either of you? They have the song The Hole of the Moon, which uh, Mandy Moore did a cover of. <laughs> oh, that's a good pedigree. Yeah. <laughs> Wallinger recorded the debut album Private Revolution at his home, playing most of the instruments himself with additional contributions from his former bandmates and fellow comp mate Sinead O'Connor. This album yielded the minor international hit Ship of Fools, which I actually quite like. Put the Message in the Box was the second single from World Party's 1990 sophomore album Goodbye Jumbo, which reached number 73 on the U.S. Billboard 200 and received a Grammy nomination for Best Alternative Album. Really? Yeah. Despite this momentum, the band never quite broke through to a larger audience, and Wallinger went on to suffer a brain aneurysm in, in, in 2001. Fortunately, Robbie Williams scored a hit with his cover of the World Party song, She's the One, which helped Wallinger pay the bills as he spent the next five years recovering. He was able to resume touring in 2006, though. And I yeah, I kind of like this song. It's not my favorite World Party, so- uh, World Party song by a long shot, but it's a decent piece of kind of Beatles-esque pop that I can imagine might have been refreshing to hear on the radio in 1990. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> Shrug is about yeah about right. Yeah, this band's name kind of uh, is kind of false advertising. <laughs> like, well, I don't know. I, I feel like I'm gonna get like a D Light album or something based on the name and the ridiculous album covers. But instead, it's like kind of country rock eels or something. These are bad album covers. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this is fine though. I don't want to just snark all over the band. It's a, uh, it's it's just kind of like in the company of a lot of my favorite songs of all time. So it's mm. kind of tough to compare. So it's a sequencing thing, really. Yeah, I would. I actually, as someone who spends a ludicrous amount of time making mixes and playlists, I I thought that this compilation would have been even more solid if this song had been replaced by the Lightning Seeds 1989 hit Pure. Ooh, good song. <laughs> yeah, I think it would have felt better that way. But as for the song under discussion, uh. Yeah, Wallinger, he seems well-meaning, if a little preachy. Yeah. And his sound is about as distinctive as a restaurant named Eatery. <laughs> but I would still much rather be bored by his unimposing, vaguely Beatlesy and Dylan-y college rock than by, say, Uncle Cracker or someone more current. <laughs> well, that's hardly a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> From me, it is. That's yeah. I don't have much. They do much have to better songs than this. Though. I will say that this is not. They, they the were most on Saturday Night Live. And, really? Uh, yeah. Huh. I I haven't seen it, but I apparently they were much more popular than the our collective memory has retained. It was season sixteen, episode five of SNL, hosted by Jimmy Smits. I always like looking up who the host was. What year would that have been? Uh, Nineteen ninety. Okay. Huh. Hmm. Hmm. I. Well, I've got some research the to famous do. Famous Jimmy Smith's episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm done with World Party for good. So, <laughs> yeah, is the you guys can go on. Is the World Party over? I think <laughs> it has been for quite some time. Then let's get to one of my least favorite songs by my favorite band. <laughs> this is XTC's Dear God. Dear God. <laughs> I've been wanting to talk about XTC at length, but this is going to be a somewhat truncated history because I'm actually finally going to be covering the band proper in just a few months. Uh, just you wait. It's going to be awesome. So XTC originated in the town of Swindon, England as a four-piece punk slash new wave band consisting of Barry Andrews on keyboards, Terry Chambers on drums, Colin Moulding on bass, and last, but by his own estimation, not least, Andy <laughs> Partridge on guitar. So Andrews left and eventually joined the band Shriekback, who I haven't heard, but their albums are all over the miscellaneous S section of used vinyl bins. And they swapped in lead guitarist Dave Gregory, whose incredibly nimble playing helped the band score a series of UK hits, uh, such as Making Plans for Nigel, Sergeant Rock is Going to Help Me, and Senses Working Overtime. All of which are essential listening if you have not heard them. Yes. Yeah. 
Sergeant Rock is going to help me is pretty dumb. I'm surprised that it was. It's I'll dumb, like it. but it's fun. Yeah. I'm surprised that it was a hit. Yeah, yeah. It's a anyway. Unfortunately for the band's momentum, Andy Partridge suffers from extreme stage fright, and the only way he could perform on stage was to numb it with Valium, which he was prescribed for hyperactivity when he was 13. Uh, after his then-wife, Marianne, dumped his supply down the toilet, uh, the effects were almost immediate. So Partridge literally darted off stage in fright during a March 1982 live performance in Paris, um, and the band permanently ceased touring shortly thereafter, becoming a studio-only act. This drew very frequent comparisons to the Beatles, but only without all of the money and fame. <laughs> yeah. So Geffen Records eventually put XTC on double secret probation for their 1986 album Skylarking, uh, demanding a hit single or they're out of here. This meant recording in America with producer Todd Rundgren. <laughs> that one was for Amanda, uh, whose clashes with Partridge in the studio are the stuff of rock music legend, and the two are still conducting a proxy war through various interviews and podcasts to this day. <laughs> Didn't Andy threaten... To, like, cleave Todd's head with an axe or something during the sessions? Probably. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> they were very they were very cranky. They didn't like being in America at all. It wasn't just, like, a, and it was raining and stuff. I don't know. Oh, totally unlike England. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Just any excuse to get out of there. Uh, but so, um, the single Grass ended up flopping on the radio, uh, which they, they released, like, the most British song ever as the single. Yeah, it's a weird pick. But much to the band's luck, DJ still had autonomy at this point, and instead chose to flip the single over and play its B-side, this song, the much more provocative Dear God. So Partridge dislikes the song, but acknowledges his extraordinary luck, saying, whoever first flipped it probably saved us. Um, And then the song was then added to Skylarking after the fact, displacing the very lovely song Mermaid Smiled. Uh, As for the song itself, Dear God is tough for me because, as I uh, not so subtly hinted at before, I've never really liked it, even when I was getting into the band at first. But I can't deny that everything about it is quintessential XTC and especially quintessential Andy Partridge, just everything, the way it's like... Super dense and overwritten, uh, the way it has like that dramatic, like little kid intro and awkward lyrics like big reduction in the price of beer and big reduction yeah, in the amount of that's tears. A like, one. I don't, it is, but like Andy Partridge, he's the, he's one of the only songwriters who can get away with stuff like that because he does it all the time and kind of makes it like part of his art form. But I don't know, I've just never really been a big fan of this song. A lot of people haven't, <laughs> in- yeah, including Andy, and at the moment, probably the less said the better about Andy Partridge's relationship to religion. (laughs) Yeah, and Twitter. Yeah. But um, in an interview with Musician Magazine, Andy said, Heaven is not hurting anyone. And the XTC album, Apple Venus Volume 1, is emblazoned with the Wiccan catchphrase, do what you will, but harm none, which is hard to argue with. But Andy rarely knows where to stop once you get him going. Still, sometimes I think it's nice to have somebody acting from the gut in a way that reduces the big questions to a knowingly sophomoric and over-emotional three-minute pop song, I think. It could it could almost be, if it wasn't the flip side of Grass, it could almost be the flip side of The Good Place, in a sense. Mm-hmm. The Meeting Place? Or The Meeting Place. <laughs> <laughs> that, song, that song is about The Good Place, come to think of it. It is. Well, I, well we're not doing a Skylarking episode, but... There you have one in miniature. And uh, content aside, I enjoy the music, and I enjoyed Rundgren's savvy production just as much as I do the rest of Skylarking, and certainly more than Mermaid Smiled, which I think plays a lot better on their flippant outtakes compilation, Rag and Bone Buffet. Oh, huh. 
That's that's funny. We were at a um, we we all went to a record show together like back in June, and I was very excited when Dan directed me to a nine dollar copy of Skylarking that did not have Dear God, but did have Mermaid Smile yeah. on it. Yeah, that might be my favorite song on the album, though it might really? just be like it, it's way up there for sure. I think it's gorgeous. Yeah, I I like this one. It's I think I heard it at the right age to where it was able to have me go, whoa, <laughs> which I would probably not have that reaction now, but uh. Uh, yeah, for as overwrought and ham-fisted as it is, I do think it's actually pretty powerful, and I like the music. The video is ridiculous, but it's fun. Um, <laughs> but I really can't argue. I, I would actually side with Mermaid Smile being a better song, too, which I did not hear until a couple of years ago when I bought the Polarity Corrected Edition of Skylarking. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I actually think the album kind of works better without Dear God, having heard it both ways now. It does kind of sort of slam the momentum to a halt where it is on the album as as repressed but i don't know i still like it better Mm -hmm. i will say about this song that i used to just like it just because of the lyrics the same way that andy does listening to them now though they definitely like i don't know capture i was talking with john about this actually uh because it, it it captures like those early moments when you're like, you know, wrestling with your faith and just are, you know, whether or not you have faith and just uh, have just a bunch of ideas just like battling together, like in your mind, whether or not they come out uh, in any like coherent order. Like right. the song isn't supposed to be a master's thesis or anything. It's supposed to be like somebody's like angry stream of consciousness. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I don't, it's not eloquent, but it doesn't attempt to be eloquent. Yeah. So yeah. I, th- I think on that. On those terms, it's a it's a minor success. Yeah, I, I, I'll just say that it, it might just be like the song, like as a representative of XTC, because they're usually so much more fun than this. This is such yes. a leaden song. Yeah, it's it's certainly more humorless than Andy Partridge tends to be. Yeah, when he's not being a crank. Well, if we're done here, I'm done. Let's move on to one of my favorite songs of all time. This is Anna Ang by They Might Be Giants. Woo! Make a hole with a gun perpendicular To the name of this town in a desktop globe Exit wound in a foreign nation Showing the home of the one this was written for My apartment looks upside down from there Water spirals the wrong way out the sink And her voice is a backwards record It's like a whirlpool and it never ends In the glow of each other's majestic presence Listen in and hear my words To the ones you would think I would say If there was a me for you I wish I could play the whole song I know Alas Former high school friends and giant overclocked brains John Flansburg and John Linnell formed They Might Be Giants In the early 80s after finding themselves coincidentally moving Into the same Brooklyn apartment building Wikipedia says the band was founded in 1981, but I used to have a TMBG t-shirt that read Extra Crispy Since 1983, so I tend to believe that date. Influenced by seemingly every musician from John Philip Sousa through Lydia Lunch, the Johns possessed a prodigious talent for writing dizzyingly poppy songs using such atypical elements as woodwinds and accordion, and the ability to spin hooks from fatalistic lyrics like, as your body floats down 3rd Street with the burn smell factory closing up. Bump bump. Their self-titled debut was released in 1986, and ever since, they've been favorites of a certain breed of overachieving music geek. 
who is sitting at this table. <laughs> Two of them. Two of them, yes. Yeah, I, we forgot to note this, but Will and I are actually recording together in Michigan today. Hello. Hi. From Michigan. <laughs> Anna Ng was on uh, their second album, the 1988 masterwork Lincoln. The song reached number 11 on the U.S. modern rock chart, and its wonderfully odd video was helmed by Adam Bernstein, best known as the director of It's Pat the Movie, along with less <laughs> prestigious projects like Breaking Bad and Oz. Oh, right. That is quite a resume. Now I'm going to picture all the camera angles in the video like they're Breaking Bad ones or something. It's it's close. <laughs> mm-hmm. You could you could kind of see. Uh, yeah. You could draw a pretty straight line, I think, between the video for this and some some Breaking Bad. The video for this song yeah. is great. Uh, it's definitely worth watching anyone who hasn't seen it. It's uh, like every early They Might Be Giants video. It's kind of just like the two Johns let loose in an empty space. Uh, mm-hmm. In this case, it's a fire station in New York. and uh, At Ward's Island, best yeah. known from that one episode of America's Next Top Model. Anna Ng is the greatest. There are plenty of songs by any number of artists about how we humans surround ourselves with noisy detritus that makes it harder to find moments of real connection with each other. But rather than being a scold about it, Linnell plays it achingly sincerely through a narrator whose loneliness provides a beating heart to go along with the overly referential lyrics, and I say that as a compliment, and Flansburg's slashing gated guitar. And Rich is so excited to talk about this song that if I don't stop there, he may reach across the <laughs> desk and smash me in the windpipe with a maglite a la John Travolta and Broken Arrow. <laughs> yeah. No, you can talk about Anna Ang all you want, Will. But <laughs> okay. So there's a moment when I would say I went from music is fun to music is my favorite thing about being alive. <laughs> and that was when I heard Anna Ang. So well put. Yeah. So when I was 13 years old and first put on the Lincoln album, I just couldn't believe that music could be this good like i I mean just i don't know i think this was it like this was like puppy love for me with music (laughs) like in fact in my eighth grade language arts class we were all like assigned to do poetry readings that could be set to music and in fact could just be just parodies of music if we wanted to um and mine was just anna ang with john linnell's lyrics replaced by incredibly off-meter lyrics about how music is amazing wow yeah like, this song was the vessel by which I chose to, like, channel those thoughts to my eighth grade class who probably made fun of me. You don't but still have it, do you? No, I, it, was, it was definitely recorded at the time, but it's probably been, like, long thrown out. The only reason I did it was because I, I, my, my eighth grade language arts teacher was a huge TMBG fan. Oh. Yeah, it was, it, it was really cool being 13 years old and finding an adult who was into this band. That is really cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, I just... I love everything about this song. I don't even really know where to start. I guess I would say that, like, having listened to it uh, dozens and uh, not even dozens, hundreds of times over the years, like, I, I used to just listen to this on loop, like, not even listening to the to the rest of Lincoln for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, the thing I didn't really notice until lately was the auto harp, uh, which is which goes on throughout the song and is like a really like nice instrumental touch. It's it's amazingly well composed. Dan, mm-hmm. what do you think? I'm actually going to, I guess, be the, they, they might be Giants uh, novice uh, and say the song sucks. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, really, uh, they're a band I've yet to completely crack, despite seeing them live twice and enjoying them both times. Um, the albums have just never really completely, they haven't quite warmed up to them for whatever reason. But I love this song. Always have. Uh, so what is going on with the guitar? Is that You said it's just a it's gated? Because it has that just sharp attack that just sounds great. <laughs> Mike would know better than, or producer Mike would know better than I do, but I'm pretty sure it's just a a gate that's very, very specifically tuned in to Flansburg's work. <laughs> it sounds cool. I like it. Yeah, it does. <laughs> and then, and then there's the the tremolo in the chorus. The tremolo. Um, mm-hmm. 
where the guitar just goes like <laughs> oh yeah well the thing i love about the gating being like so sharp is that there's a the the negative space is like really really apparent between the parts yeah and, it's um, like stark like, yeah, it's and, harsh. Well, yeah. If, uh, the way I, so I might be like really overthinking this, but TMBG songs are made for that. Yes. <laughs> so like the um the way that that kind of thing looks on a waveform is like it, it kind of looks like jail bars basically, mm. which kind of fits like the kind of trapped feeling of the song. I love. Yeah, that. that's good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love the lyrics here too. I I'm just gonna lay it on the table here. Yeah, I love. There's <laughs> nothing I don't love about this song. Like just 100 percent of this song is tailor made for me. Like I I I love the lyrics. Make a hole with a gun perpendicular to the name of this town in a desktop globe. Like uh, it, it's like a he's like painting a little situation for you. Like how you get to the person he's singing about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then just like a, I don't know like the series of images toward the end of the first verse. Like um uh, my apartment looks up, looks upside down from there. Water spirals the wrong way out the sink and her voice is a backwards record it's like a whirlpool and it never ends i just love that like expanding series of like spirals you see there mm-hmm. uh, plus a brainy reference to the coriolis effect yeah which <laughs> which is perfectly they might be giants i'm kind of going hoarse here talking about this song <laughs> right, well, we can move on if you'd like we'll go on to uh yeah, let's 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 move on. I, I mean, I, I could talk about Anna Ang and TMBG forever. Well, Will and I will unda- undoubtedly keep on like throwing random TMBG references into episodes. That's um, the Discord and Rhyme guarantee. Oh, one more thing. I, I will say that uh, if you want the Discord and Rhyme treatment, like given to They Might Be Giants and then some, I highly recommend the podcast uh, Don't Let Start, a podcast about They Might Be Giants, where... These two guys are just going completely above and beyond, going through every single song and excavating, like, every little thing that can be, like, possibly known about everything they've ever done. And they're conducting, like, primary research here. Yeah, there there aren't many other bands that I think could withstand such a thing, but mm-hmm. They Might Be Giants certainly are... are <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, so we'll so we'll eventually cover them proper on the show, but just, just know that there are a couple guys out there, like, doing like doing god's work yeah doing god's work so well let's move on to a band that's very very special to will and to me but especially to will (laughs) this is camper van beethoven with aya fatima part one parentheses part one oh (laughs) close parentheses Another truly singular band, Camper Van Beethoven formed or slowly coalesced from the remnants of other <laughs> bands with names like Box Olafs and the Estonian Gauchos in Southern California in 1983. They insinuated but did not exactly ingratiate themselves into the local punk scene by playing a strange, smart-ass combination of ska, rock, psychedelic music, what they imagined world music to sound like, hoedowns, 
and any other manifestations of the Terpsichorean muse they felt like taking a swat at. That one was for Phil. <laughs> this song is the opener from their major label debut, Our Beloved Revolutionary Sweetheart. That album dialed way back on the snarky anti-punk provocations from their earlier work, like College Radio Mainstay Take the Skinheads Bowling, and instead is an album that's full of halfway mature, wholly confident rock songs that sound like no one but Camper Van Beethoven. Eye of Fatima Part 1 doesn't have the lyrical depth of some of their other songs. David Lowry apparently based it off of a conversation he had with the girlfriend of former CVB drummer Anthony Guess regarding her and Guess going on a huge drug binge with a bunch of cowboys in Wyoming. The lyric, Cowboys on acid are like Egyptian cartoons, seems to have been taken nearly verbatim from this discussion. <laughs> I'm not sure how I came to this conclusion, but when I first heard Eye of Fatima in middle school, I assumed it was about some sort of Branch Davidian-style cult. <laughs> I, it, the lyrics do not support this reading, <laughs> but I still suspect David Lowry would appreciate that interpretation, unfounded as it may be, because he sings about cults and domestic terrorists a lot. Musically, this is about as straightforward as the band ever got. Um, I won't blame you for wondering what the hell I was talking about earlier when I listed all the different styles they tried on because it's pretty straightforward, but from Jonathan Siegel's over-delayed violin to the inexplicable use of a talk box on the phrase driving like hell, it still contains plenty of glimmers of what have always made them special. And from this song forward, Camper Van Beethoven have sounded self-assured in addition to self-amused. Yeah, I actually heard this for the first time maybe a year ago when I finally bought Our Beloved Revolutionary Sweetheart and because uh, I kind of just lived in uh, key lime pie for years, it just being my own like camper van because I love it so much, but I just never really went any further than that. Mm -hmm. and, Which is uh, a different uh, camper van Beethoven album. Yeah, we should probably make clear. <laughs> right, I'm sorry, I, I didn't no, live no, no. in the dessert <laughs> key lime pie. <laughs> that whole album is great, and uh, you know, again, I guess for this collection, you can't. They just sort of pick what they pick as far as what represents these bands. Right. I don't know if I'd pick this song. I like it. And uh, it's funny hearing it without the part two that to me is kind of inseparable from the song. Yes. On the album, it comes with uh, part two is a, a cool ska based instrumental uh, rave up thing. It's been a while since I've listened to our beloved revolutionary sweetheart. Uh, I remember the song My Path Belated feeling like the most obvious like radio ready song. Yeah, it's pretty soaring kind of. Yeah, I, I'm glad that they went with a really weird one, though. Yeah. <laughs> Mm -hmm. uh, I primarily think of just Camper Van Be Beethoven through the lens of Will, honestly, like to the point <laughs> where I reflexively think of the Disclaimer Music Review Archives layout when I think of their albums. Uh, it turns out you didn't just make them up, though. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't really have much specifically to say about Camper Van Beethoven. I just uh, I recommend checking them out further than this, uh, especially their like 2004 comeback. Well, you can even say comeback album. Uh, first album in a while. Re New Roman times. Sort of, yeah, reunion-ish studio mm -hmm. album, even though they had recorded a surreptitious reunion album, which was mm -hmm. just a, a cover, an album length cover of Tusk by Fleetwood Mac. Yeah. Just to see if they could stand working together again. <laughs> After a oh, I didn't it. oh, I didn't know that that was how that came together. Yep, they they claimed that it was just uh, a bunch of demos that they'd found in Mark Linkus's house from Sparkle Horrors. <laughs> Somehow he'd gotten a hold of them and decided to release them, but actually they had recorded them slightly before its release in 2001 or 2002. And I will say that Santa Cruz is a pretty nice place, I guess. I've been to the Santa Cruz Beach Boardwalk numerous times. <laughs> they do seem fond of Santa Cruz. Mm-hmm. 
Go banana slugs. <laughs> to the exclusion of other uh, spots in California, if you listen to the song, uh, Don't You Go to Goleta. Oh, oh, yeah, and maybe Don't You Go, Don't You Go to La Jolla. Yeah. yeah. California places. I will say it was rather thrown by David Lowry's ponytail in the video. I was not expecting that. Okay, well, we will be covering Camper Van Beethoven in more detail eventually. We're sometime this year. Yeah, yeah. that's the schedule. Yeah. Tentatively, but... unless they turn into a, a helium-like <laughs> Don Quixote-esque <laughs> windmill. Mm-hmm. Well, then we'll hear more about them later. So for now, let's move on to a song that all of us have definitely never heard. This is Modern English's I Melt With You. No such thing. <laughs> Moving forwards, using all my breath. Making love to you was never second best I saw the world crashing all around your face Never really knowing it was always mesh and lace So, hey, it's one of the most famous songs of all time. Or at least it's super famous in America, since we've gotten a little bit of pushback for assuming that U.S. radio equals all radio. Fine. Have we? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. I remember, like, way back with the Earth, Wind, and Fire episode, like, all the assumptions that everyone had heard September. Turns out that not everyone has heard September. Huh. There yeah. are other countries. Yeah, there are other countries. <laughs> I think the War of the Worlds episode made up for that. Yeah, seriously. Uh, but anyway, this very British song was very specifically an American hit first, actually. It, it took off after being featured several times in the 1983 Nick Cage movie Valley Girl, uh, including a montage where it plays out in its entirety. Uh, I, and I haven't seen that movie in a while, but I remember it being pretty great. Yeah, it's and, good. And yeah. it has a it has a very famous soundtrack. So this beautiful song comes from a band that started out under the beautiful name The Lepers in 1978 <laughs> in Colchester, England, uh, consisting of Robbie Gray on guitar and lead vocals, Gary McDowell on guitar, and Richard Brown on drums. They added Mick Conroy on bass and Stephen Walker on keyboards, wisely changed their name to Modern English, and signed to the 4AD label, which Mike talked about a bit in the previous episode because the Cocteau Twins were also on that label. So, I Melt With You comes from the band's 1982 album, After the Snow, and it initially hit only number 78 on the Hot 100 and number 7 on the mainstream rock chart. And that seems pretty low for such a well-known song, but one thing to remember about the charts in the early 80s is that MTV Airplay didn't factor into a song's position. Uh, so at the height of MTV, songs could like receive really substantial exposure without much chart success. So uh, the song became a substantial sleeper hit without hitting the right metrics to register on Billboard. So uh, it's also been kept alive because it's a natural fit for lazy food commercials, including Ritz, M&M's, Hershey's, Taco Bell, and Burger King, which is the one that I remember, certainly. Uh, it's about as lazy as using Bargain by The Who. Or Bad to the Bone. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but this is funny when you consider that the song is about a couple making love as a nuclear bomb drops, literally melting into each other as they die. Fun. Yeah. <laughs> I think, well, on this particular compilation, stood up against the more... I think the more substantial likes of Anna Ng and Aya Fatima, this one's a pretty glaring shot of just total one-hit wonder fructose. <laughs> the nuclear war illusions in the lyrics do give the, the title line a clever meaning beyond sounding 
merely cheesily romantic, but it's still not even as hefty as Weird Al's Christmas at Ground Zero. That's not to say I don't like it, though, because it is almost inexcusably hooky. And I don't even think this version is the the Clinquent radio mix, though I might be misremembering. I feel like there were a number of songs in this era whose radio mixes were far more accessible than the album versions even were, like All I Want by Toe the Wet Sprocket, Young MCs, Pick Up the Pace, and so on in that fashion. But the radio mixes never seem to have made it anywhere beyond promos sent to radio stations, and at any rate... I Melt With You may be nothing but simple syrup, but I would still give all of my remaining radioactive bones to write a song this soaringly catchy. It does feel like a bit of an outlier on this collection of otherwise kind of cool college rock to have mm-hmm. this very, very 80s. Early 80s. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm wondering like how it how it came off in the early 90s since the song has had like another... 30 years at this point to become really played out well is this the oldest song on the collection this is 82 right yes yeah well it was re-released in the late 80s and Uh, and charted again also in the somewhere in the mid 70s this song never charted very high but again mid 70s it was that old no 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 uh, sorry the mid 70 range of the charts oh i see what you're saying (laughs) that's all right too (laughs) yeah they were ahead of their time I think yeah, because it was in commercials and stuff, for the longest time, this was just kind of generic 80s music to me. Right. And I think it was seeing, hearing it in Valley Girl that made me kind of reassess it. And I think what really makes the song for me is that little kind of minor key piano bit mm-hmm. that pops up. To me, that kind of makes the song. Like that little touch just sort of yeah gives it an extra yeah, something. Yeah. I like that bit, and I think that uh, I think that Blur pay homage to that at the beginning of Trouble at the Message Center uh, off of Park Life, because th- those bits have always reminded me of each other. That's a good deep cut. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of my favorite songs on the album. I like it too, but yeah, I would I would never have made that connection. Um, yeah, there's not much else to say about modern English because they uh, <laughs> yeah they really never popped up again to my knowledge. Uh, they always uh, they always popped up in a bumper on some radio station in the Bay Area, and they would always say, "Hi, we're modern English." <laughs> <laughs> so that's the first thing I think of when I hear their name. <laughs> I'm sure they appreciate the uh, the impersonation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Our biggest fans, yeah. Okay, well, that brings us to the end of Volume 1 of Nevermind the Mainstream. Uh, we're planning to cover Volume 2, but to keep things from getting too samey... <coughs> nuggets! Uh, we're, we're gonna First, we're going to switch back to Motown, the complete number ones, where we'll be taking on disc number two. So if you're hearing this on our main feed, a reminder that if you sign up on Patreon, you'll already be hearing those episodes. Uh, anyway, let's roll credits. What do you call this record with all these songs? Thank you for listening to This Is Comp, part of the Discord and Rhyme podcast. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at DiscordPod. Our theme music is based on the song This Is Pop by XTC, originally composed by Andy Partridge. The opening theme- Noted atheist. <laughs> <laughs> Dear God. <laughs> the opening theme is performed by the Hector Collectors, and you can buy their albums at thehectorcollectors.bandcamp.com. The closing theme is performed by Kenneth Crayley, and you can hear his music at Kenneth Crayley, K-R-A-Y-L-I-E, dot bandcamp.com, and his band, Casinos, at casinos.bandcamp.com. See you for Motown, and be ever wonderful. <laughs>